Welcome to the Bioengineering Podcast. This podcast is currently intended to promote and increase transparency between current, future, and prospective bioengineering students and faculty. This podcast is not directly affiliated with the UC San Diego Department of Bioengineering. The following is a conversation with UC San Diego bioengineering professor, Dr. Benjamin Smarr. Okay, so today we have uh, Dr. Benjamin Smarr. Uh, Benjamin Smarr is an assistant professor at the Halujolu Data Science Institute and uh, the Department of Bioengineering at UCSD. Um, he, uh, you know, I think does research in circadian biology and things of that nature and uh, did his PhD at the University of Washington. And then I believe did a postdoc uh, at UC Berkeley uh, before arriving to UC San Diego. Um, so uh, Dr. Smar, thank you for being here today. Uh, and, and could you, you know, uh, begin with your journey to UCSD, your upbringing and, and what made you interested in what you do today? Sure. Thanks for doing this, Omid. I'm glad to contribute. I grew up in the Midwest in Urbana-Champaign in central Illinois and was really interested in bugs and fish and where does behavior come from. And that long story short led me to eventually a PhD in neuroscience. One of the things that was strange to me in neuroscience was that you ask somebody, why does an animal become hungry? And they say, well, the NPY neurons are activated. And I said, well, but didn't something activate the NPY neurons? Like, they didn't just do that in a vacuum. And so there were these different aspects that I felt like I wasn't getting from a traditional neuroscience education. So connection to physiology and the body, uh, and then also the randomness of things, right? I don't just sort of get hungry throughout the day randomly. Right. There's a rhythm to it. How do we think about not just what neurons are where, but, but when, right? How does the, the temporal organization inform how we think about a system being organized? So that led me down a sort of weird rabbit hole of discovering programming and data science because I ended up needing to build a lot of my own analytic tools to interrogate the data for these different temporal patternings that were not just the mean of the thing, right? And so uh, turns out there's not a ton of people that do that. So you mentioned circadian biology in my introduction. My PhD was in a lab focusing at the intersection of circadian biology and ovulation, two different timing cycles. How does your brain take timing information from one, use it to trigger the other? And doing that turned me on to, you know, circadian biology as a field. It was, at the time, pretty young. Really nice to meet all of these uh, more senior professors and, and know that the field was small enough to get a lot of personal encouragement. That was very fun. But also realize how many of the tools were, uh, you know, not computational tools. They were much more classical statistics. So how do we develop computational tools to take advantage of the larger amounts of data that we now have? And uh, so that led me down two different roads. One was uh, getting into wearable devices and, and wearable sensors, because cool. you know, rather than just needing an average from somebody, I could actually see all of the patterns over time, and then we could actually analyze all those patterns over time. That would be nice. Second, uh, because I was working in ovulation as well, I was really shocked at how paltry the research into uh, basic female physiology is. Mm -hmm. I differentiate that from women's health. So it's, it's not just you know, how easy is it to get pregnant or, or menopause, both of which in fact are also massively understudied. 
but just the basic differences between men and women or the complexity within that space, right? Obviously, most people would call you and me men, but we're not physically identical. Sure. And so yes. what actually is that high dimensional space that helps me say this is a person who will respond to this treatment or have higher risk for this outcome? Uh, and categories like men or women or black and white and Hispanic, uh, they're not terribly precise, right? They, there's a ton of complexity within any of those. So if we can sort of see somebody over time, if we can see the physiology over time, does that give us a much more actionable uh, information surface, if you like, right? A, a better grasp on who's this person actually functionally, physiologically like? And then, you know, from there we can make a much more educated choice like, well, for people like that, this kind of diet is really effective. Whereas for people that are not like that, it isn't effective. So rather than just say, what's the average for everyone, we could start to imagine tailoring these things. So it seems like it's running parallels to the idea of health optimization. It's a lot of health optimization. A lot of my early work, weirdly, was with you know groups like the Biohacker Collective or yeah. Quantified Self. I've lived for many years of my life with various sensors bought online and then taped onto my body somewhere. Yeah. yeah. I can't recommend that. It's pretty painful <laughs> sometimes, but it was the only way to get the data at the time. And there was this idea of, well, circadian rhythms are apparently you know important throughout your whole body if that's true shouldn't i see that these different body parts show rhythmicity right shouldn't mm -hmm. i see that that affects how well i eat a meal or how smart i am if i'm sleep deprived or whatever else right can i really see that yeah and luckily you know wearable devices became commercially much more easy to, to get a hold of and i stopped having to you know sort of tear myself up a little bit but uh that also ac opened up access to larger populations so now we're doing work, for example, with COVID or women's health or uh, mental health. And these, these use different data sources, but a lot of them are pre-existing data sources because now people just are generating these data anyway. They have right. a wearable device or they have a computer, they have an online presence. These things leave uh, what we call a digital wake, right? You sort of leave a pattern behind you based on your own behavioral patterns. Mm -hmm. Those behavioral patterns change if you're getting depressed or if you're getting older or if you're becoming pregnant. You know, what, what are the signs that I can see in that wake you leave that tell me, you know, hey, you might want to know this about yourself? Yeah, so I would say it seems like in the early days uh, of, of this field, and I'm just going to refer to it as maybe circadian biology. Sure, sure. Um, there perhaps was a limitation of data. Mm -hmm. And would you say now in 2023, we've maybe overcome that limitation in, in not, all ways and forms? Or not overcome it at all, but we've, we've transformed from my PhD where all of my time was can I generate a handful of data points to data rich where we now have lots of data points mm -hmm. right yeah um, the reason I say we haven't overcome it is there's still lots of things that I don't have data on right I can yeah. I can kind of infer for your sleep from your heart rate and your body temperature and your activity for example something that a lot of wearable devices give off um, and yet there's no standard for what actually was happening inside your body during that sleep so that I would understand why your heart rate had those rhythms to it, right? What was happening to all of your different hormones, all of your different organs? There's a lot of this fairly basic descriptive work that hasn't been done. There's also a lot of sensors that are missing, right? I might mm -hmm. say uh, a big challenge in the field, for example, is not just, you know, there's glucose monitors. Can I now watch your glucose over time? Sure. Yeah. Does that tell me what you ate and how your body interacted with it to generate that glucose? No way, right? No, no. Yeah. So there's tons of physiological complexity, microbial complexity, 
uh, and behavioral influences on you, right? When you woke up, did you see the sunrise or not? And I get none of that as a researcher. Yeah. And so we're still missing a lot of data sources to tell a full picture. Sure. There's just a lot more on the table than there used to be. So we're, we're playing catch up now, which is great, right? That means we can actually run with the data and try to find things. Um, but we're a long way from solving the problem. Yeah. So from doing your PhD at University of Washington to your postdoc at Berkeley, what transpired you to, I guess, one, pursue academia and become mm. a faculty member, and two, end up at UCSD? Sure. Um, I mean, mostly good luck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, for, for, for those of you scoring at home, I would say pursuing an academic career is not, should not be the obvious choice. Uh, my whole career, let's call it 20 years now, the per capita funding has only ever gone down. The competitiveness has only ever gone up. Mm -hmm. And so if you're thinking about a long-term bet, that's a stupid one to make. <laughs> um, if, you're, if you can imagine being happy doing other things, there's lots of other things that need doing, right? I have yeah. very close colleagues that work in communication, either as marketing officers or uh, writers or things of this nature. Uh, I have lots of friends that you know work in companies and mm -hmm. they're product managers or they're uh, COOs or they're you know they're very intellectually active. They're very engaged in solving real world problems, but academia requires the kind of masochism where you really just can't imagine doing something else, yeah. right? And the fact that you get paid less, the fact that you have a million other duties that you're not compensated for, the fact that you feel responsible for people and maybe can't control whether they get funding or not, like you have yeah. to just be able to digest this. Yeah. So I am comfortable with the fact that I'm a little obsessive. You know, I, I really feel very, very strongly about these much longer horizon goals like improving women's health, improving equity of access to technology. Uh, those are never going to be the short-term profit motives of a company. Yeah. And so that's not where I feel like my life is best spent. But that doesn't mean there aren't lots of companies and lots of other organizations also trying to make inroads in their own way. Right. So it's really feeling the personal fit, I think, that keeps you going that way. Um, I was fortunate to get the position at Berkeley. I, uh, the person I did my PhD with at Seattle was doing very similar work in a not exactly competitive, but a little bit head-to-head -head way with this guy at Berkeley, but they actually knew each other and liked each other. I met him at a conference, and my pitch to him was, uh, look, we've met, you know, you've seen my papers, uh, you know that I have the skills that your lab needs to be productive, yeah. so you could basically turn me into uh, a skilled laborer right away. But in return, what I want to do is be able to start exploring how do we get some of these things into humans? Can I do that? Mm -hmm. um, and he was very open and supportive about that. So that turned out to be a, a wonderful thing. We spent several years together. And then um, being on the job market was very taxing. Uh, it, I was on the job market sort of solidly for two years. Yeah. I applied to many positions. And because I, I mean, you know, because is probably the wrong word, but retrospectively, one way I make sense of this was because I was doing things that were very different from how other people do them and trying to pursue you know, wearables and time series analysis and mm -hmm. the intersection of circadian rhythms with all these other fields, each of which is already a little bit niche. Finding an audience that could say, oh, I totally get what you're doing was extremely hard, right? And yeah. it's not exactly engineering. It's not exactly biology. It's not right. exactly circadian. Um, and so working on pulling together the story of, you know, the theme is that, yes, we measure these things, but if we don't measure them over time, we miss where a lot of the variance comes from. That forces us to be imprecise. 
that's bad. Look, if we measure these things over time within an individual, we can account for a lot more variance. We can make a lot more precise inference. And that's generally true across applications. So there's a sort of engineering of time approach. And look, here it works in cancer, here it works in sickness, here it works in women's health, here it works in aging, here it works in education. You know, we need this time approach, right? Um, UCSD happened to be in a place where they wanted somebody to help bridge School of Medicine, the Data Science Institute, and the School of Engineering. And I was doing clinical collaborations even with some people here already, in fact. Mm. Uh, and so I think those things converged nicely. But, you know, uh, in a slightly different world, I'm sure that I would have ended up going and working for one of the various wearable health companies that, yeah. that I was also uh, talking to at the time. Yeah, that's so cool to be, it seems, like at the intersection of these sort of three in, uh, institutions, if you will, that we have here at school. Yeah. So that's, that sounds super awesome, super fascinating. Uh, it's a perfect transition to sort of, I guess, the, your lab today and the sure. current state of the lab. So obviously, uh, as most faculty, if not all here at UCSD, they were once in a lab <laughs> and then, uh, you know, most likely did a postdoc somewhere and then sort of um, created the lab. And I like to often lead with the or the question, you know, does the research you perform right now um, mimic uh, all of your PhD and, and postgrad studies, <laughs> or you know, is it is it is there one sort of main streamline of research, but then it's gonna, it, but then it branches off into many different avenues, and and you know, does that come with going into uncharted territory, and and, and do you like that, or you know, so? Yeah, it's a good question. Um... I can understand how what I do grew out of what I did, uh. but I don't know how obvious that would be to most people. Um, first of all, let me say, I don't do a lot of research these days. I enable and support and interact with students who do really good research. Yeah. Um, and I'm extremely proud of the students in my lab. I think they are really wonderful. Um, what I try to say is I spent a lot of time you know, at the bench and then eventually at the computer training my brain to recognize patterns that other people hadn't seen mm. uh, some of that involves you know specific motor skills being a skilled surgeon or for example uh, a lot of it is more abstract skilled experimental design sort of logical uh, extrapolation of what's the really necessary piece not just what sort of sounds good at first flush um, what I try to do now is say okay well I I'm not the person at the bench anymore yeah I have you know, a dozen people amplifying the push that I'm trying to support, mm -hmm. and that's amazing. It feels, it feels uh, heady, honestly. Like, it, you know, I was a student not that long ago. Um, having all of these talented people look to me for direction is a lot of responsibility, and so I, I yeah. take it very seriously. I really want to make sure that they feel like what we're pursuing makes sense. You know, if we don't agree, that they can push back, that we can sort it out, and we can say what's the best way to proceed here. Um, so with that, I can see where I know they will be able to find things. But they don't have those 20 years of experience. And so how do I crystallize what I've learned, what I've seen, uh, you know, be it techniques, be it approaches, be it sort of a philosophy? Mm -hmm. All of these things come together in so much as the, the work we do really is still an art, right? When we render an, an artifact, like a paper or a patent or whatever, uh, there's an expectation of reproducibility. But that's also true for Martha Stewart. And I don't think you'd say Martha Stewart isn't also, you know, or whoever your favorite cook is, I don't know, she just yeah. comes to mind, um, isn't also like playing with the medium. And when she makes a pie, it probably tastes better than when I make a pie following the same recipe, right? Yeah. So yeah. how do you convey 
know, first of all, why was it obvious to me that this was the pie we should be baking? Second of all, uh, yes, I'm going to throw in a bit more clove than you think is right. Why do I think that fits here? Yeah. Right? Where is this coming from? Mm. How would you push back? How would you gain that confidence? Um, so it's a very different life. And frankly, it feels sometimes a little bit silly in as much as it's weird to me that these people, that anyone would listen to me that closely. Yeah. But we work together to find things that you know, convince us and then we present it to others and generally are successful at convincing others. And that's kind of the only reality we have, right? Is right. I think this works. I give it to you. It works. Cool. I guess that works, right? Mm -hmm. Wow. That was very profound. Thank you for that sure. explanation. Um, so on the topic of women's health, I think it'd be, I think it should be totally necessary. And I, I, I would like to talk about it because I, when I was, when I was an undergraduate, I took a, a, a woman's health slash sort of, I guess we like to call it femtech hmm. course. And it was really cool, and it was Great. a really eye-opening experience for me on how much um, we need uh, to keep developing technologies and, and, and whatever it may be to, to support um, the woman of the world. And so I was wondering if you could speak on to that and if you sure. have any experience currently or previously. Yeah. Sure, I appreciate it. Um, it's very strange to me that one has to make this argument. Women, but for infanticide in very large countries are um, naturally a majority of the adult population. Uh, they're, you know, they're not globally by a thin margin, as I said, for very unfortunate reasons about what kind of kid people want. But um, you know, men kill themselves off more as young men doing stupid things fundamentally. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the argument in a normal NIH grant is something like, you know, there's this particular kind of disease, it has this genetic component, it affects you know, 5% of this one subgroup, it's compelling. It needs address. Uh, you know, yeah, that's true. That needs address. You know, women are <laughs> the norm of humans, numerically. Why do we treat that like it's a niche group? Why do I have to make this argument? Mm, <laughs> that's yeah. ridiculous. Right. Um, but of course, for historical reasons, we do. So, um, it's very challenging, I think, to get funders or the audience to appreciate that trying to understand physiological complexity or biological complexity when you're dealing with women or people who identify as female, whichever way you'd like to slice it. It's a high dimensional space. You can slice it many ways. You're not just talking about getting pregnant, Yeah. right? Um, women manifest heart attacks differently than men. Lots of women historically have died as a result of being sent home because they didn't say their left arm was numb. Mm has nothing to do with whether they're getting pregnant or not, and, and it doesn't define the person. They simply are a person who has different physiology. So if we ignore anyone who has physiology different than fundamentally someone who looks like me, mm -hmm. uh, you know, again, for those scoring at home, uh, tall, you know, scotch-derived white guy, um, we're not able to treat them as effectively, right? And right. That, that's true of any reason that your background differs, right? Different socioeconomic environments, different diets, these lead to different developmental trajectories. Not surprisingly, the way that medicines interface with the resultant person is, is somewhat different. Mm -hmm. It's probably different in very complex ways. And so just having simple categories like male, female, uh, you know, black, white, Hispanic, you know, whatever these sort of very simple things you put on a piece of paper, yeah. they don't capture that complexity well. So now that we have all these data that 
that give us you know the genes but also the behavior but also the physiology the sleep all these things can we paint a better landscape of what do different people look like how well does that correlate to things like men and women as traditional categories and how does that give us new information to let us make better decisions right to let us you know to let those individuals first of all feel like they have their hands on the wheel hopefully how do they understand their own health and then secondarily when they seek help for something uh, that's outside of easy control uh, how do we know how to address that for them rather than well here's the traditional you know british derived white guy solution and it should work for you and it's your fault if it doesn't like that's just a stupid way to move yeah <laughs> right i just had a thought that came into my head that may be a little bit um it's something that I think about uh, with the research efforts I'm putting forward. Um, it's a little bit outside of my maybe domain at the moment, but I often think about the idea of pain. Pain, okay. And I was wondering if you had any sort of idea or notion on to this idea of, I guess, quantifying pain. Oh, interesting. Um, because I feel like, you know, the, the, the way we have talked about today, sort of the things you are thinking about and looking at uh we seem to be getting to the root cause of things uh, mm -hmm. biologically and physiologically yeah so the idea of pain often crosses my mind because um there seems to be some sort of limitation clinically um when you get asked what's your pain level one to sure ten. and i was just wondering if you had any insights there because that's a really really interesting question it's it's one of these things that is exactly the kind of question that i think is so fascinating because it requires a lot of participation from the subject uh, if I have a biomarker for pain, I'm going to go give blood tomorrow, right? I, I have friends that are much bigger and more intimidating looking than I am who hate giving blood because yeah. uh, they're going to hit me with a needle. I, I don't care, right? Yeah. So is there some biometric of it's because of how my nerves activate? Is it because of some mental characterization in my head that this is normal and therefore I'm not worried about it? Yeah. Uh, you know, you can't simply say, well, I stabbed a bunch of people with needles and I, and I mapped their nervous response and that's pain. As you point out, it's right. very subjective. Yeah. Same with sleep quality, same with satisfaction of your diet or your life. Um, I think the only way you get this is by adding one more of those data channels that we talked about, which yeah. is people being able to report their experience and have it count. Yeah. And then you can correlate that to the physiology and you might be able to say, you know, for somebody like this who's in this kind of a setting, they're more likely to report that this isn't actually going to hurt them. Yeah. As opposed to, I did a blood test, you know, they don't need more pain medicine, it, it shouldn't affect them, right? Like, mm -hmm. the physiology certainly is there, and, and the experience comes from it, but it's such a complex space that assuming you know what to look at in the physiology such that you don't have to ask the person feels, at this point to me, really presumptuous. Right. Well, thank you for the response. I just, something that just came up, popped up in my, into my mind, and I just figured you'd have a good response, so thank That's you. That's kind. Yeah. Um, we can sort of segue, I guess, here to sort of the, the, the back end of, uh, of our conversation. And that's sort of what uh, you folks like to do for fun. <laughs> and what, what um, our faculty members here like to do to get away from the lab or get away from research and, sure. and writing grants and, and the daily tasks that come with being a PI. Sure. No, the daily tasks are endless. So one, one thing I've mentioned how one needs to be a little bit of a masochist, perhaps, um, learning how to rotate tasks so that when you're tired of staring at your code, you're now staring at papers to review, or you're yeah. in a meeting talking to a committee or talking to a student doing a podcast who's cool. Uh, you know, keeping that flow helps prevent burnout on any one task. Yeah. 
Um, personally, I work a lot, uh, and that's partly because I, en I enjoy my work. I find it satisfying as yeah. well as meaningful. Um, but you do need breaks, and you do need to invest in mental health to be sustainable. And so totally. my favorite wind down is cooking. I, I love to be chopping vegetables, be frying things. I can't answer emails when I'm doing that. I, yeah. I can't really focus on something else too well. Sure. It feels pretty meditative. Uh, and then you eat something that's tasty, and that's never wrong, right? Um, <laughs> right. So uh, exploring flavor space as a sort of intellectual, uh, you know, uh, ragdoll as compared to actually trying to chew on problems here at work. Yeah. So it sort of scratches that itch, but in a very low-pressure, satisfying way. I, I have, uh, speaking on cooking, elaborating there, uh, I've heard that North African food Oh, is, ha, you've is heard. Of your, is of your interest? I love, so yeah, absolutely. Um, no, you know, I, have, I just cooked a tagine for my parents uh, two nights ago, big lamb tagine. Um, my basic premise is the mid, Middle East and into North Africa was the center of global trade for millennia. And so if you wanted to know what are all of the spices available to humans and how do we mix them, that was the place that got to do all the best experiments. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, I, I think they've, you know, to my taste, they've nailed it. And so I love exploring uh, North African, Middle Eastern cuisine. Try to cover the globe, really enjoy learning yeah. what makes different cuisines different. Right. But, uh, but that's definitely my go-to. Interesting. Um, do you, f I, I like to ask this when, when faculty members share their hobbies, uh, when you see your, when you're cooking, do you ever find yourself, uh, approaching it in the same way you would approach time series analysis? Or, um, only know? in the very, very earliest phase. It's an interesting question. I only would ever try to convince somebody else of something with a strong numerical argument. But there's an exploration phase where you say, I've got all these data. I don't want to just throw them in the blender and get back a number because I don't know what it means. Right. I want to visualize it. I want to look at it. I want to see, do I think I see these different patterns? Do I think they're changing in different ways? Hey, here's the spectrogram, and it looks like there's this kind of day-night cadence. What's that's about? Yeah. Um, cooking is that flavor to me. It's the early part, you know, hey, let's, let's throw some tarragon on this. Why not? Let's see how that smells, right? It's... Do I measure it to exactly a teaspoon? Never, never, sure. right? It's, it's enough, it smells good, it seems interesting, it's slightly different than last time, let me explore that. That's the pleasure. Mm, that's cool. That seems actually maybe a little bit uh, uh, reverse of what you're dealing with every day, right? If you're... It's, it takes off that pressure, exactly, yeah, yeah, exactly. When I was at a lab and pipetting things down to the microliter, uh, you know, having to worry about the microliter of butter I'm adding is not fun, right? So it's, it's specifically saying, I get that there's the chemistry part, I get this, there's the exploration of high dimensional spaces. I specifically don't need the artificial constraint. <laughs> yeah. And so uh, is cooking something that you've been uh, passionate about for many years now? Or is this a new development? Yeah, no. Um, growing up in the Midwest, my dad was uh, grew up on a farm and seeing, you know, unfortunately the obesity epidemic mm. hit the US, you know, Illinois was leading the charge there for a long time. Okay. And it was interesting always to think about this used to be a place where some of the most rich produce came from in the world. And now, you know, everybody has diet soda and Lay's potato chips, like clearly something is wrong there. So yes. I've always yes. had a very strong feeling that one wants what I call real food, right? You, you want to know that it was challenged. You want to uh, know that it's microbially rich. You right. want to know that it's not just looks like a tomato, but is a tomato. Yeah. And so 
I don't, I don't know that it's cheaper. I don't know that I trust it more. I don't know that I think it tastes better when I go out most of the time. Right. So it's easy to say, well, let me find produce that seems good. Let me go feel good about giving money to a farmer's market instead of a big chain store. Yeah. And, and then I sort of buy myself the time that is required to cook the thing, and that's my relaxation time. Yeah. Well, that's, that, that's great, and, and, and thank you for sharing. Um, we, can, we can begin to sort of wrap this up, mm-hmm. and I often like to just ask, you know, if you have any sort of parting words, um, it can be delivered in any uh, way, huh. shape, or form. About, you know, it, it can be delivered to the audience. It can be delivered to whoever's listening about, you know, anything, really. Sure. I guess, you know, without meaning to sound self-important at all, uh, I think it's good, for me at least, it helps to remember that the world is totally random most of the time. And so uh, if I was a squirrel, I might just get eaten by a hawk one day, and there's not really a lot of moral judgment associated to that. Right. So I think the thing to do is, you know, to the extent possible, try not to make fear-based decisions. Try to do things because there's a compelling positive reason. Yeah. Um, To the extent possible... Try not to get a big head when things work because they worked for lots of other reasons other than you. Yeah. And when things fail, try not to get too negative because they failed for lots of reasons other than you, right? Always look for what could I do positive that adds and and try to not get too tied up in the rest of it because you probably can't control it anyway. Right. Well, thank you, Dr. Smart, for being here today. Great pleasure.